again. You just saw me, didn't you? Good to see you again. Hey, um, how's your weekend going? Good? Minus maybe the cold and rain this morning. It's, uh, we praise the Lord. We have some extra time off this weekend and hope you enjoy your time uh, with your friends and family. And uh, what a greater thing to do than to spend some of that here with us at Wawasee. And so I'm really glad to see you, glad you're here. And we're in a series uh, going through the book of Exodus. And uh, we've been going through it all spring and summer. And we're in Exodus chapter 17 today. We're gonna be in verse eight of chapter 17. Uh, But before we uh, get going, maybe we should just kind of lead up to where we're at today. And of course, uh, God's people were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God to uh, hear them and see their slavery and rescue them. And so God raised up this guy named Moses in a pretty miraculous way. And he raises up Moses and at the age of 80, so if if you're 80 years old, God's just getting started with you. Right? At the age of 80, Moses goes, he sees the burning bush and he goes into uh, Egypt and tells Pharaoh, hey, let, God says, let my people go. And so eventually after uh, a battle back and forth and God demonstrating his power through the plagues, he releases God, his, God's people, Pharaoh does, and they escape. But then Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So he chases after him to the Red Sea, right? And uh, by God's grace, and again, his miraculous power, he splits the Red Sea, parts it for them. They go across on dry land, and uh, then the the sea closes in over Pharaoh's army behind them. And then we've seen uh, how God provided for them, even in the midst of their grumbling as they go through the wilderness, about a million people grumbling against Moses because there wasn't water and there wasn't food, and God miraculously again provided for them. And now today uh, we see them, they're still on their way to Mount Sinai. They're pretty much right uh, next to it. They're close to it. And they're in a place called Rephidim. And in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse eight, by the way, uh, on your insert this morning, all the little tiny references, like next to all the points. Yeah, those are totally wrong. Those are all from last week. You know, I copied it this week and I never changed those. So I apologize. So that means... Uh, you'll just have to pay extra attention today. Does that sound good? So those are those are all wrong. So if you go looking for something like, what is he talking about? That's not this. You're right. <laughs> so I messed that up. But let's read in chapter 17, starting in verse eight. It says in, in chapter 17, verse eight, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Amalek, who is Amalek? Well, it's a nation of people and Amalek, was actually the son of a guy named Esau. Esau and Jacob were twins. Jacob has 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. Esau, uh, one of his sons was this guy by the name of Amalek. And he becomes uh, one of the first nations of people we find out in the Bible. And they have antagonism against God's people. They would have lived in uh, the Sinai Peninsula and even into probably modern day Saudi Arabia. And more likely than not, what's happening here is that Amalek hears, uh, and and those people, I mean, he wouldn't have been around anymore, but his his people, his descendants, hear, the nation of those people hear about the Israelites who are wandering in the desert. They must think, man, those guys, they're vulnerable. They're out there in the middle of nowhere. That seems like a good opportunity to attack. And they were known for attacking people, this, this group of people were. And so that's exactly what happens. Amalek came and he fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
Now, as we uh, work through this morning, the first thing I want you to notice as we try to apply this to our own lives is that trouble will come your way. It will. I mean, imagine this, uh, Moses, especially, he's a leader. He's been through all kinds of things, leading God's people. And all God's people have seen God work in miraculous ways and they're following him. And uh, as they go, uh, all of a sudden you would think if they're following God's will and following after him and doing what they're supposed to be doing, life should just be easy, shouldn't it? I mean, everything should just go perfectly, totally according to plan, except for the times that it doesn't which is most of the time, would you agree? And especially as you follow the Lord. See, even as you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and even if you're not, trouble will come your way. Has anyone experienced that to be true? You've had trouble come your way in your life. Well, uh, God's people here, they were attacked and trouble found them. They weren't looking for trouble. It came up upon them in the form of Amalek and his, his descendants. Now, when does trouble come? What well, often comes after success. See, uh, God's people here, they're attacked after great success, after victory. Think of the victory that they've gone through over the previous just a few months. They've seen Pharaoh totally defeated. They've seen God's power in miraculous ways to rescue them in the 10 plagues and in the crossing of the Red Sea and providing food and water for them in the desert. I mean, that's great victory, would you agree? Can, and yet, so if everything's going great, often what happens, the enemy attacks after success, after victory. I told you like the subtitle of this whole series, Redemption, is how Jesus frees us. And there's freedom both from our sin and being saved, but there's also this journey then of walking with the Lord after we've been free. And that's where we see the Israelites now, after they've been freed from Pharaoh and from the oppressor, now they're walking with the Lord and they're still facing trouble. And oftentimes, see this mirrors in many ways, the, the book of Exodus mirrors really God's plan of salvation all throughout time. And that, that many people, after they come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden uh, the attacks will tend to step up and there's more trouble for them. So that, uh, I mean, uh, Satan can't do anything to rob us of our salvation. It's a free gift from God. Only he can give it or take it away. And once he gives it, he doesn't, uh, but he can make your life miserable so that you wouldn't trust him and follow him or obey him, right? So if he can't take it away, he's gonna do whatever he can to make you ineffectual. And so there are attacks that come, trouble will come your way. Sometimes as a direct attack of the enemy, sometimes just because of the messed up world that we live in, it's both and, but trouble will come your way. And often though, the attacks of the enemy come after success. See, he attacks God's people after they've experienced a special blessing of some sort, but he can, God can use those attacks to, to help us trust him, to trust him more. Think of some examples here with me. It was after his victory over uh, four different kings that Abraham was, Abraham was tempted to take the spoil in Genesis 14. It was after the victory over Jericho that uh, there was a guy named Achan in the people of Israel who was tempted and stole from what was supposed to be totally the Lord's. And they go overconfidently to Ai and get whipped in Joshua 7. It was after Elijah defeated the priests of Baal in a miraculous way, calling fire down from heaven. 
that he gets depressed and discouraged and runs away and says he's going to quit. It's often after great success that trouble finds us. And that's not a mistake because after success, your guard kind of comes down, doesn't it? Like, hey, things are going pretty good. I don't need to worry anymore. I'm going to be fine. And that's often when the attack and when trouble comes. It also comes at your weakest. It comes after success and trouble often comes at your weakest point, especially from the enemy. See, these God's people here, they were attacked from behind. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy, by the way, that word, it means second law. And in Deuteronomy, you're going to find a second telling of much of what's laid out for God's people in Exodus because it's another generation. It's written 40 years later. And this new generation needs to hear the things that were taught originally by Moses. And so Deuteronomy means second law, the second telling of all these things. And there we get a little more insight on what happened here. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and he cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, he didn't fear God. In other words, he cut off your tail. He's saying, remember how he attacked you like the surprise attack from behind when you weren't ready? In your weakest point, when you were faint and weary, that's when he attacked you? See, oftentimes, uh, if we're not, we don't have our guard up, we're not trusting the Lord and keeping our nose in his word and trusting the spirit, the, the attacks come after success and it also comes when we're vulnerable and when we're weak, when our guard is down. Peter tells us that Satan uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. It's a real thing, friends. And, and so we need to be prepared for these things after success, when we're weak, not to let our guard down and be vulnerable, but to uh, spend more time, like we talked about last Sunday, in God's word with our nose in that book, trusting the Lord. He often attacks at your weakest moment. And then sometimes trouble just seems to come out of nowhere. Friends, trouble will come, it will find you. And many times, doesn't it seem like, uh, yeah, it might come after success. It might come in a time of weakness or vulnerability, but there's often a lot of times it just comes out of nowhere. And you didn't see that coming, that they were uh, shutting down production next week and you're out of a job for the next month. Or you didn't see that diagnosis coming. You just thought it was a regular checkup. And now all of a sudden there's this whole new reality in front of you. Trouble tends to come out of nowhere sometimes too. And Amalek comes really out of nowhere. God's people, uh, the Israelites, weren't expecting a battle at this point. I mean, they hadn't even made it to Mount Sinai yet, let alone the promised land. How is, why in the world is it hard already? This is, this is out of nowhere. Terminal diagnosis, a freak accident. Can you imagine the people even this week on the East Coast in Florida and up and down the East Coast wondering what's the trouble coming with this hurricane? can come out of nowhere. We're not immune from it. And trouble will come your way. And whether that's trouble from the enemy or just general trouble in general, trouble will come your way and it will require oftentimes you to battle. Trouble has a way of drawing you into the battle. Let me keep reading here in verse 9. 
So Malak comes, he attacks them at Rephidim. And so Moses <coughs> said to Joshua, this is the first time Joshua shows up in the Bible. Joshua, we learn, will learn is, is a, an assistant to Moses. He has a book written about him as well. And uh, he leads, he's the one who actually leads God's people into the promised land 40 years from this point in the text. And Joshua is a unique guy in the text because he's one of the very few that there's really nothing uh, uh, glaringly faulty about him. There's nothing said about him where he had this glaring fault. He's really unique. Everybody else like, yeah, they're pretty messed up. Joshua, for whatever reason, uh, his faults weren't made known as well through scripture. But Moses says to Joshua, this is the first time we see him, says, Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So, so Joshua has a task, right? He's to choose some guys who can fight. He's to gather up those who could. And then he's to go out and fight. Now, if you're familiar with this story, I want you to think with me. How many times so far in the entire story of Exodus, from the time that they were slaves, through the plagues, through uh, being freed across the Red Sea, to gathering food and water and being free in the wilderness. How many times had the Israelites had to fight up until this point? The answer is zero. This is the first time they have to fight. In fact, um, up until this point, they, they didn't have to fight. In fact, God told them in excuse me, Exodus 14, verse 13, that they should stand still and see the salvation of the Lord that he was about to show them that day. Their salvation was totally an act of God freeing them. This was the first time they'd had to fight. That's why he says, hey, Josh, you gotta find some of these guys who can fight because it's, it's time to fight. We're in a battle now. Trouble will find you and it will require you to battle. Now, before we get too far into this point, uh, it's important that we just take a minute and talk some theology. You okay with that? Talk a little theology today? Everybody in? You here? All right, good. So here's what we want to talk about. The difference between, you've probably heard these words if you've been in the church for any time at all, but salvation and sanctification. And each of them constitute a rescue of God rescuing you from your sin. Uh, and each require effort, but they're different in who's providing that effort. See, in salvation, salvation refers to you being saved from God's wrath. If you're not a Christian or you, you haven't really been to church much, maybe you've heard people talk about or you've, you've heard that saying like, you need to trust Jesus and get saved. You ever heard that? Well, that means that to trust him and be saved and safe from God's wrath. See, the reality is that we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. And our sin, the wages of our sin is death. It's, it's God's wrath. He's a just and perfect and holy God. And because he is, he has to deal with sin. And sin results in death and it results in uh, being under God's wrath for sin. Ephesians chapter two tells us that we were all once children of wrath. We were under God's wrath. But by God's grace, Jesus uh, put himself under that wrath, lived the life we couldn't perfectly. And though he didn't deserve it, he died a criminal's death on the cross in your place and in my place, taking God's wrath for sin on the cross. 
Another theological term, that term, that's propitiation, to satisfy God's wrath. Propitiation, Jesus took the full punch of God's wrath. Isaiah says that he drank the full cup down to the dregs, the last drop of God's wrath for you on the cross. Salvation is about being saved from God's wrath, that you could be with him for eternity. That's salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. Who does all the effort in salvation? It's Sunday school answer. If you don't know the answer, who do you say? Jesus. Yeah, God does all the effort in in salvation. You can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. He does all of the work. Your only response is simply a response to believe in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, right? Simple. Now think back, this mirrors the Exodus. Think back to the Exodus. What did they have to do? What did God's people have to do to be freed from Pharaoh's wrath and his oppression? Believe and follow. That was it. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to fight and God freed them. That's salvation. Now on the other side is this idea of sanctification. Sanctification comes after salvation. Now, uh, some churches seem to get it wrong that somehow you have to get sanctified before you can be saved, that you've got to get yourself all cleaned up and then you can come to Jesus and be made right. You know, and that's like the fisherman who says, well, I'm going to clean all my fish before I catch them. It's not possible. See, because you're so messed up, you need Jesus to make you clean. And so he does that. Now, sanctification is living in that new reality and becoming fully this new person that Jesus has freed you to be. You are totally free, but you're not yet totally free, are you? At least not from the effects of sin, not from the sin that dwells within you. You're free from God's wrath, but there's some growing up that needs to happen. And now you're on this pilgrimage, moving to the promised land of being with Jesus forever when everything will be cared for and you'll be totally perfect and totally new which will be a fantastic day. Sanctification requires some effort then from you. God totally does all the work in freeing you, but in sanctifying you, he still does the work, but there's participation on your part that needs to take place. Where when trouble finds you, part of that's for your sanctification and it's gonna draw you, require you to battle sin to battle thoughts that aren't productive, to, uh, to fight for freedom. You didn't have to fight to be saved, but listen, you've got to fight if you want to become holy and be all and experience all that God has for you in this life. It's going to take some effort on your part. And that effort is evidence that you've really been saved. So that's the difference between salvation and sanctification. And in this picture in the Exodus, when they were freed and crossed the Red Sea, freed from Pharaoh's wrath, that's salvation, all God doing the work. But now they're on this pilgrimage towards the promised land. And guess what? They're gonna have to obey. They're gonna have to fight. And when they choose to obey, They're gonna receive God's blessing and they're gonna grow and good things will happen. But when they choose not to obey and they choose to sin, what are they gonna do? They're gonna suffer. And it's the same in our life. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're free. But in living that freedom out, when we obey, we grow. When we sin, we suffer. And that's the difference between salvation and sanctification. One day when Jesus returns, you'll be fully sanctified. But until then, you're still a sinner saved by grace who's been made new, 
There's a battle for you to fight. So Moses said to Joshua, now choose for us men, go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. And we don't know anything about Joshua up to this point, but clearly he's got some skill in leading men, doesn't he? And in leading people. And we know nothing about him. This is the first mention of him, but he's able to go out, recruit guys to follow him, bring them under his leadership, and then lead them into battle. He had some skill, didn't he? And in fighting this battle, Joshua employed his skill. In, in fighting a battle against sin and for holiness, you, you have to employ uh, some skill and some effort of your own. But it's also no, to be noted here that Joshua wasn't alone. He did this with others. See, verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Well, we know Aaron is Moses' brother. Her, we're not quite sure who he is, but Josephus wrote that this was actually Miriam's husband. So this would be Moses' brother-in-law. His brother, Aaron, his brother-in-law, her. Her, by the way, in Hebrew just means white or white stuff. So if this was today, it would be Moses, Aaron, and Whitey. And they're going up. They're going up the hill to watch the battle. Literally, that's what it, that's what it means. And so that, that's, maybe it's a nickname, I don't know. But they go up and uh, to the top of the hill above the battle. Whenever Moses, we read in verse 11, held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Well, uh, if you're not familiar, I mean, to, to raise his hands was an act of surrender to the Lord, of prayer to him, of relying on him for strength. And in Moses' hand, he would have had God's staff, we read. And so God's presence is above Moses' head, who is the leader of all the people. Ultimately, we like to say it, Jesus is the senior pastor. I'm just the lead guy here, right? It's his church. And so the staff is above him. And when that came down, it was like this, this uh, real-life picture for all God's people to see uh, Jesus needs to be first. And when he's not, bad things happen. When his hands were raised, they prevailed. When they were lowered, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Like any leader, he got tired because he couldn't do it all by himself. And Joshua couldn't do it all by himself. See, if you're going to fight a battle for sanctification in your life, you can't do it alone. It requires other people. We like to say it in terms of a core value. We all need friends. You need other people. God created you lacking relationship and needing it. But Moses' hands grew weary. So Aaron and Whitey, they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on either side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Moses couldn't do it alone, could he? You and I can't do it alone. We need other people in this journey. We need connection. That's where life groups comes in, friends. Like to get connected. And it's not necessarily that you're gonna make the best friends of your life, but there's at least people there that, that you can rely on and do life with. And, and seasons change. And sometimes those relationships ebb and flow over time, but you need somebody. Get connected. Moses needed somebody. Moses, uh, the greatest leader other than Jesus, needed people to help him. 
Now we also see here, though, their dependence on the Lord. Moses and, and Joshua and all the people, they were dependent on God. I mean, when his hands were up and surrendered to God, praying to him over the battle that was happening, they won because there was dependence upon him. You can't do this alone. You need other people, but you also need God. You need Jesus to help you through this. You need to rely on him. You need to be in his word. You need to spend time praying and talking with him, worshiping him, singing to him in relationship. You need that. And really that dependence on God is really a partnership where the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'll, I'll send my Holy Spirit to be with you. I won't leave you as orphans, but the Holy Spirit will come and help you as your helper in partnership with you as you grow. Now, he still does the bulk of the work. I'm just saying there's some things for you to do in the battle. And we all need each other in this. And God designed the church in such a way that we all need each other to do our part. And when everybody does their part, Joshua led the battle, Moses prayed, Aaron and Hur held up his hands and supported Moses. They won the battle, didn't they? What's your part? Where will you serve? When Moses held up his hand, they prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You get to verse 13. It says then, because of this, there was victory. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The Israelites weren't seeking trouble, but trouble found them. It will come your way and it will require you. It required them to battle on this pilgrimage of life after you've trusted Jesus. It'll require you to battle, but doing so, as we've already said, always depending on Jesus, always depending on him. See, then the Lord said to Moses in verse 14, he said, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is the first indication that Josh would be Moses' successor now, I said the staff it had to be above Moses' head, symbolizing God's superiority to his people. And uh, eventually, uh, God says, I'm going to blot out from memory Amalek and his people. And so Joshua, as the next leader, needed to hear these things and have them recited to him so that he understood part of his role then was to, to fulfill this. But it doesn't actually happen until David later. So what Moses does is Moses builds an altar, verse 15, and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Have you ever heard that before? There was a song when I was in high school and in college, we'd sing his banner over me, right? There's, there's hymns about this as well of, of God's banner over us. It's love, it's protection, it's grace. Maybe some songs are even coming to your mind, but do you know, literally, if you could see this in Hebrew, Literally, this idea that the Lord is my banner, you know what it really says? I mean, it says this, but it, that gets translated into this in English, and it kind of ends up coming out of the King James that we get the Lord is my banner. But literally, it's Yahweh is my signal pole. Like, wow, that's really clear. That's helpful. That's why it says the Lord is my banner, that he's over us. But the Lord is my signal pole. In other words, it was like this idea when, when they would go into battle in those days, there was always a, a rallying place where they would come back for instruction. They knew this was kind of the rendezvous, right? This is where we come back, we get our marching orders, and then we take off again. 
So in saying that Yahweh is my signal pole, Joshua and Moses, they're, they're going out, they're fighting, but they're always coming back to him, depending upon him to give them instruction in the next steps. They were dependent on him because this isn't the last time trouble would find them. It's not the last time they're gonna have to battle. They're always gonna have to continually go back to Jesus for instruction and for help and for guidance. And friends, that's where reading God's word comes into play for you. That's where getting in a life group comes into play for you. That's where coming to worship on a Sunday morning and hearing God's word taught comes into play for you. It's returning to him for instruction because God is our banner. He's our signal pole. He's, he's the one we rally around and to, and he's the one then who sends us out. Trouble will find you. It'll require you to battle and it'll require you to always be dependent on Jesus, returning to him for your strength and instruction. The text goes on and says, uh, after Moses says I'll, uh, the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What Moses was really saying here was that my hand was at or on Yahweh's throne is a way of saying when, when I held up the staff, I was symbolizing the presence of God right with us, sitting on his throne, ruling over the battle, helping us win. Dependent on the Lord. I don't know the trouble facing you right now. I don't know the trouble that'll find you this week or next week or next month or next year. But I do know that there's a God who loves you, who knows, who cares. And as you run to him as your banner, as your pole, as your, for your instruction, he promises to be with you, to help you through. And as you listen to him and fight the battle the way he prescribes for you to do it according to his word, it may be incredibly hard it may be incredibly painful, but he'll be with you and he'll help you and it'll be for your good ultimately. Do you believe that? I wonder um, which banner are you under? Where do you return for instruction? Where do you go for instruction? Do you just go to the waves of culture, to social media, your friends who have no connection with the Lord Jesus, or, or do you return to Jesus Christ and to his word? If not, I would commend that to you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thanks for the example of the Israelites in your word, of the ways that you uh, did all the work in rescuing them from the hand of their oppressor, Pharaoh. And yet as they pilgrimage, as they uh, journeyed and were pilgrims on their way to the promised land, to the thing that you had promised for them in the future, you required them to face hardship and you, you allowed for that to happen and you required them to fight. Jesus, the same thing happens with us. So help us to respond in faith, trusting you, depending upon you for our instruction and for our help returning continually to your word, to each other, that Jesus, you would uh, be made much of, we would uh, 
receive good and joy in your name. Lord, I pray for those who've never trusted you, who've never made you their banner over their life, your grace, your work on the cross, Jesus, that today might be the day that they would look to you in faith, not of any effort of their own cleaning themselves up, but totally by your power, Jesus, rescuing them uh, by faith in you and in your finished work on the cross. And then that you would, by your spirit, empower them to begin living the life that you have planned for them and that you've rescued them for. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing with us as we close.